name is Alfred Bielik. I have been involved in the Philadelphia Experiment, the Montauk Project, time travel. I wound up in the 28th century, and this was in a time period of uh, 2749 to 2751 A.D. Talk about changes in civilization, society, and everything else. It was drastically changed once or so in 2137, as this is now 600 years later. The cities were enormous. The cities were beautiful. They had ground-based cities, much as we have always had them. But they also had something else, floating cities. Floating cities, due to anti-gravity, techniques being perfected sufficiently that they could float an entire city. But it floated on this platform, and they could move the city any place they wanted. The incredible and unheard-of story. Well, you'll be hearing it today. Most people have heard this in certain circles. Not everyone knows about it. Alfred Balick. It looks like Bailik, but it's actually Bailik. The man from the future is actually from present time in the past of the United States, worked on projects and what is now known as Area 51. He also worked and was a part of the Philadelphia Experiment and the Montauk Project. And he was allegedly sent to do two different points in time in the future. The far future, in excess of 600 years. And the things that he saw and documented and came back to tell us about will be what I'm covering on this week's episode of Paranormally Speaking. I'm your host, Neil Parks, and this is the incredible story of Al Balik, the man who traveled through space and time. Now, according to popular legend, in 1943, the U.S. Navy undertook secret experiments based out of the port of Philadelphia. And these experiments were designed to put Einstein's unified field theory to practical use by making a naval ship invisible through magnetic cloaking. While conspiracy theorists debate the existence of the Philadelphia experiment, one alleged survivor of the scientific outing, Al Balik maintained that the Navy's purpose was entirely different. According to Balik, the true purpose of the Philadelphia experiment wasn't invisibility. It was time travel. It was allowing us, or hoping to allow us, the ability to open doorways to time, space, alternate dimensions, alternate reality, parallel universes, name it. That was what they had on their drawing board. It brings to mind... A situation that I myself lived through when I was, I believe I was 19 at the time. And, and I was in college and delivering pizzas for a pizza shop in my hometown. And the VA hospital is settled in the same town in which I live. And they had a certain part of the hospital that was up on the hill and that is where they kept their uh, so-called guinea pigs, people that were exposed to certain things in battle chemicals mainly but there was one patient in particular that caught my eye and I happened to walk past the room where they had him closed off, the door was open because they were cleaning the room and I was trying to deliver food to the orderlies and went down this hall that was marked off because I was told it was a shortcut. But this was on a Tuesday and on Tuesdays, no one was allowed on this floor. But I went ahead and walked through 
one past the sign stating um, no authorized, only authorized personnel, no admittance. So as I'm walking down the hall, it's dimly lit. Not every light is on. It's almost as if they had the power halfway shut off on this floor. And as I'm walking past, I notice the door is open and I see a bed and the imprint of someone lying on the bed, but no physical body on the bed. And monitors hooked up to someone's chest and someone's nose and around their head, but no physical body. I backed up after I walked past to get a second look. And as I'm watching, I see a person coming to full form. And it was a much older man. He was very old. And he goes out again and completely disappears. But everything that is around his face, his head, and the, and the things that are stuck to his chest to monitor his heart rate and his blood pressure, those are still there. And you can see them moving up and down, matching the pattern of his breathing. And as I stood there for a few more seconds, the body came back into view and faded back into existence. And he looked forward and then looked to the left and saw me standing there watching him. And I could hear the monitors go off. His heart rate was increasing. And he reached out towards me, pointed his finger at me, and was mouthing something, but no words came out. And at that point, two giant hands grabbed me from my shoulders and said, uh, that's, that's about enough. They're cleaning in here. You don't need, you're not supposed to be here. And there, three men are moving me along rather quickly out of that hallway. And I go back into a main area where all the lights are on and there are a few people out there. One of them is the orderly I was supposed to deliver to. And he looked pretty shaken up. He said, just, just leave the food over there on the table. And I turn and look at the three men that grabbed me. Two of them were in military fatigue. And the two other people that were sitting in the lounge with this orderly were standing over him. And they were in suits and just staring right through me as if I didn't exist. And I looked at him and said, is everything okay, Tony? And he's like, yeah, just, just go. Um, we went ahead and paid for it on our card. Have a good day. From that moment forward, we were never called to deliver anything to that specific building ever again. And they put a chain-length fence around it with barbed wire. Uh, it was about an eight-foot-tall fence, may, maybe uh, about that tall after the point. Uh, but it took them a weekend to put it up, I guess. But when I went back to do a delivery uh, a week or so later, uh, found out that Tony was no longer an orderly at that specific building. They had moved him to another building at the other end of the campus for this hospital. And he acted odd around me from that point on like he would never make eye contact when talking to me uh, he looked as if he wanted to talk about something or bring it up maybe never did but I will never forget seeing that person lying on the bed and fading in and out of solid form it was the strangest thing I'd ever encountered and it brings to mind the stories that were shared by people who lived through the Philadelphia experiment they say that the lucky ones went mad and were institutionalized. But those who did not lose their minds after this experiment had gone awry became guinea pigs where 
quote-unquote, they would fade in and out of solid form in front of their own fellow soldiers until they then became a science experiment of their own. And researchers were running tests on them, trying to figure out when they fade away where they're going. And when they come back, trying to get information on what they're seeing as they fade into another world. I'm Neil Parks, your host for Paranormally Speaking, and that is what I will be discussing today. The story of Al Balik, the story of the Philadelphia Experiment, his experience and time travel into the far-off future, and his work on the Montauk Project. Please hold for an important word from one of my sponsors. Ghosts, aliens, UFOs, Bigfoot, parallel universes, angels and demons, time travel, cryptozoology, and so much more within the realm of the unexplained, the strange, and the out of this world. I'm your host, Neil Parks, award-winning author, screenwriter, researcher, and paranormal professional. Join me every week as I tackle hot-button topics within the paranormal realm. I'll share personal accounts, my research, and second-hand evidence. I will read excerpts and stories from my books and discuss my upcoming projects in the literary world. Documentaries, both on TV and the big screen, plus my independent film projects. Paranormally Speaking is both thought-provoking and entertaining. New episodes drop every Thursday. Tune in to Paranormally Speaking and prepare to be enlightened. The unfortunate truth uh, is that Mr. Balick passed away in 1997. He left a legacy, a lot of unanswered questions, but really kind of shook the world, took it by storm with his firsthand encounters, his claims, and the stories that he shared. And in 1990, Balick claimed that he spent time in two separate periods of the future only to return to the present and tell his story. And that was just the beginning of the fantastic revelations of this totally, completely, absolutely 100% not fake time traveler, as if someone would make that up anyway. Uh, he was kind of a peculiar child in his own words. Um, Al Balik was born in 1927 to an otherwise wholesome family. He says his first memory came at a Christmas party when he was just nine months old. He found he was able to fully understand the adults talking in the room around him. Growing up, he says he was known as the walking encyclopedia, easily distinguishing himself among his classmates. While in the Navy, you can travel through time and space. Am I right? As a young man, duty called. So Al was compelled to join the Navy to help fight the Nazis. It was here that Balik took his first trip through time. According to Balik, he was just a lowly naval officer serving aboard the USS Eldridge in 1943. In later years, the Eldridge would become famous for supposedly harboring the Philadelphia Experiment. One day, August 13, 1943 to be exact, Balik and his brother were subject to some odd happenings aboard the ship. They jumped to safety only to land in the year 2137. While in 2137, Balik was treated for radiation injuries through a highly advanced series of treatments that relied on vibration and light. What's more, the entertainment in the hospital was solely educational and news programming, the only choice of TV in the entire world. The Earth had undergone rapid change. When Balik landed in 2137, he discovered that geographical shifts had transformed the globe. 
the coastlines and every continent had changed dramatically. Florida had disappeared except for the panhandle. That's easily the worst part. The Great Lakes were just one giant Great Lake. Atlanta was three miles from the Atlantic coast. In 2137, Balak said that the United States infrastructure had been completely destroyed. The central government was a total thing of the past. Both Canada and the U.S. were gone, rolled over with a kind of locally enforced martial law. According to Balak, around 2005, the United States and Europe would have banded together to fight off the combined threat of China and Russia. The resulting war killed billions of people. The total population of the world war of the world would only be 300 million and essentially ruin the world's governments. Now, an update on this prediction for 2005. Uh, according to how things were supposed to go in order and the way the chips were supposed to fall to create that destiny, it was thwarted by the events of the September 11th terrorist attacks of 2001. That really put the events that would have happened in that strain of reality in 2005, thus preventing them from occurring due to the 9-11 attacks. From there, Balak says he was sent forward to the year 2749. There he stayed for two years before being transported back to 2137 to pick up his brother. In 2749, the world had adapted the technology to build mobile floating cities. Government of any kind was non-existent in that time. Everything was run by an AI called the Synthetic Intelligence Computer System that worked telepathically. Wars were non-existent in 2749. Balak stated that there were no wars because, according to him, wars were practically impossible. There were no military or soldiers, Navy or Air Force. So any conflict between countries was completely irrelevant. Balak reported that no one needed money in 2749. Simply, there was no need for it. Everyone had their own credits, which allowed them to buy everything they wanted and wanted at any time. So at this point, Balak is sent back from 2749 to 2137 to pick up his brother. From there, the duo are transported to 1984, where they meet Dr. John von Neumann, who convinces the two men to travel back to the original time, 1943, in case you're lost, and stop the Philadelphia experiment from ever happening. The two men agreed when they got, went back and got the job done. After this time in the Navy, Balak completed his education in electronics. Soon, though, he found himself contracted out to various military contractors who slowly took the young electronics whiz into their confidence. They revealed to him that the U.S. military was actively involved in adapting alien technology and forwarding research on psych operations. Soon after, Balak was recruited by the Montauk Project. Though Balak was working a job in California, his importance to the Montauk Project was so great that he was given access to the super-secret network of high-speed trains running under our country. This allowed him to work his normal job during business hours and then moonlight in Montauk for the government. Of course, once the time tunnel was perfected, he could just teleport back and forth. 
throughout the 1970s. Bielek was the program director of the psychics who worked in Montauk. At that capacity, Bielek exerted considerable control over the project and was even afforded some first-rate business trips. Bielek allegedly went to Mars on several occasions. He remembers several other trips he took with teams to research stations in 100,000 BC. Other planets to get canisters filled with light and dark energy. And to the year 6037. Once Balik went public with his extraordinary adventures, the government sadly disavowed him. They didn't even do anything to him or given the dignity of calling him a crazy kook. They simply let him lecture and talk. Because while maybe he was a crazy old kook who also believed his real name was Edward Cameron and that he'd been living for more than a hundred years. Balik believes he was not harmed or stopped because his time-traveling experience locked him into this timeline. Somehow by being here today, he among others in the program served to balance the effects they produced from prior time-traveling experiments. It just so happened that the time travel to which Balik was subjected in 1943 sounds an awful lot like the set and the story for the 1984's The Philadelphia Experiment, a movie in which a couple of sailors serving aboard the USS Eldridge are flung forward through space and time. Admittedly, Balik's story differs pretty substantially from the plot that the movie from there onward is based on, but he did have about six years to flesh out his own backstory once he got some inspiration. Thing is... The story for the movie, The Philadelphia Experiment, is based on actual testimony from those who lived it. In the years since Al Balik's 1990 confessions, the conspiracy community has been abuzz with his reputed version of the events. Of course, his story has drawn some criticism, even among his own. Can we call them colleagues, for instance? One site has devoted countless hours to proving that Balik had nothing to do with the Philadelphia experiment. The site that debunks Balik's stories doesn't refute the fact of the Philadelphia experiment's existence, only that an exhaustive line-by-line inspection of Balik's entire history of speeches was needed in order to prove he had no part in it, because Balik's story was so airtight otherwise. If you're unfamiliar with the whole Philadelphia experiment thing, there's much more to cover. Much more to cover up than Balik's story. In fact, most people think that the original Philadelphia experiment idea came from a man named Carlos Allende, who wrote a series of particular eloquent letters to writers Morris K. Jessup in 1956. Allende's version of events cast Einstein as a bit more of a mad scientist type than history remembers. According to Allende, Einstein used the U.S. Navy to accomplish his own ends. The government itself reportedly had no clue that time travel experiments were being done. Allende was all too happy to confess that the whole thing was a delusional hoax later in life. Balik died on October 10th, 2011, in Guadalajara, Mexico. 
Al was 84 years old. It was rumored in 2007 that he had died from a stroke. And that went on for a few years until his actual day of death was announced in 2011. He was buried at a local cemetery in Guadalajara. At Balak's birth certificate, it's dated March 31, 1927. But whether he was born on that date or not depends on how much of Al's story you're willing to believe. He has always maintained that his real identity is that of Edward Cameron, son of a career naval officer, and that he had been regressed back in time to that of a nine-month-old baby in California in December of 1927, where he was raised as Al Balick by Arthur E. and Albertina Balick. Fantastic. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction, are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the internet. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. That's terrific. This part of the episode, it brings us to the ins and the outs of the Montauk Project. Inside the Montauk Project is the U.S. military's alleged mind control program. It was conducted on the east end of Long Island during the Cold War. Project Montauk was a secretive military experiment to develop psychological warfare with abducting children. The Montauk Project just might be the motherload of lesser-known conspiracy theories, Time travel, teleportation, and mind control are all integral to this story. While a contact with aliens and the staging of the Apollo moon landings add color to an already wild yarn, yet even after all that, and the fact that it inspired the Netflix series Stranger Things, relatively few have even heard of the Montauk Project story. So how is it that the Montauk Project, which purports the shadowy elements of the U.S. military, turned a pair of military installations on the far reaches of Long Island into a hub of illicit and chilling research into the paranormal, has gone overlooked? Perhaps it's because the story originated in sources that are dubious even by conspiracy theory standards. Though even if the Montauk Project itself is fiction, which it surely is, <laughs> the Central Intelligence Agency's documented history of disturbing experiments like the one supposedly carried out at Montauk means that this theory will stay intriguing for a few who know it. And the popularity of the Stranger Things television series firmly established, perhaps the Montauk Project's time in the spotlight might finally be just around the corner. And the bizarre origins of the Montauk Project story brings us to a narrative that got started in earnest in 1992 with a self-published book by Preston B. Nichols called The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time. 
There were already rumors that the American military had been conducting experiments in psychological warfare on eastern end of Long Island as far back as the mid-1980s, so Nichols' book added fuel to an already existing fire. Both Camp Hero and the Montauk Air Force Station, the Army transferred a portion of Camp Hero to the Air Force after World War II, were said to be the hubs of these paranormal research facilities. Nichols begins by saying that he wrote the book after recovering memories of his time as a researcher for the project and then goes on to give account detailing the interior of the facilities, the procedures, advanced technologies, and numerous paranormal incidents he claims to have witnessed. After the book's publication, others started coming forward to say that they too had been privy to the illicit research conducted by Montauk Project, beginning the process of circular reinformation that is the essential mechanism of a conspiracy theory. In terms of this actual claims, Nichols' book goes all in, experiments in mind control and telepathy, opening space-time portals to other dimensions, contact with alien life, and the abduction of runaway children, all under the authority of a U.S. military program financed by Nazi gold recovered during World War II. With so many claims in play, untangling it all is an epic undertaking. Fortunately, I can give you a place to where to start. For example, the Philadelphia experiment. I've gone over that with uh, what Al had gone through on the Eldridge. He and his brother, what they had gone through. Uh, there's also the tale of two portals from the Philadelphia experiment to the Montauk project. And that brings us to 1984, the 57-year-old man named Al Balik. Now, he saw the movie in 1988. He claimed that he experienced an overwhelming sense of deja vu after having watched it and realized that it was telling his story. And the Montauk chair, psychic espionage and portals through space and time. Preston Nichols details in his alleged work on the Montauk chair in this book, claiming it used electromagnetic energy to further the psychic powers of whoever sat in it. Duncan Cameron, in a stroke of uncanny coincidence, happened to have substantial psychic abilities, including the ability to manifest objects with his mind using the device. And, of course, we've seen the same thing in the show Stranger Things. And if you've not watched the show Stranger Things, I highly suggest you check it out, along with The X-Files, as always, because they touch that show touches on these projects, these experiments, these conspiracies, along with the short-lived but poorly cloned version of The X-Files called Dark Skies that was on NBC. And that was also a pretty good show. And then, of course, there's the show Project Blue Book, based on the actual Project Blue Book itself, with dealt, which dealt with alien encounters and UFO sightings. Inside the unsolvable mystery of the Montauk monster that washed ashore in Long Island. In the summer of 2008, locals in the New York hamlet of Montauk were shaken by the discovery of a bloated and bloodless creature they couldn't identify. It was dubbed the Montauk Monster. Then it mysteriously vanished. In July 2008, a strange creature washed ashore on Long Island, New York, lying dead on the beaches of Ditch Plains. This beast, known as the Montauk Monster, was bloated, well beyond dead, looked like a monster out of a storybook, which inspired the public to dub it 
the Montauk Monster. News about the monster and theories about its origin quickly spread. People speculated that it could be the mutant result of an experiment performed at the nearby Plume Island Animal Disease Center. Others posted that it was an alien entity that had succumbed to earthly elements. Or perhaps it was merely a bizarre marketing scheme. It didn't take long for the director of the International Cryptozoology Museum, Lauren Coleman, who's largely credited with coming up with the name Montauk Monster, to launch an extensive investigation of the creature. As an expert in animals whose existence is disputed, like the Loch Ness Monster, for example, Coleman appeared to be the perfect fit for the job. If only Montauk locals would speak with him. Coleman noted that, strangely, these people put up a brick wall around themselves. What did they know about the Montauk monster, and did it frighten them? Something frightened them into silence? The Montauk monster washed ashore on July 12, 2008. Jenna Hewitt and her friends Rachel Goldberg and Courtney Fruin hit the beach at Ditch Plains. The hot summer Saturday made for ideal conditions to stroll. But as the group of East Hampton natives continued, they came across a heart-stopping sight. It looked like a sun-baked dog carcass with strange bindings around the legs, but it didn't seem like the right size to be a dog. And instead of a snout, the creature seemed to have a beak. It was much larger than the largest of dogs they had ever encountered. Hewitt took a photo of the Dan animal, which then spread like wildfire across the internet. The East Hampton Independent was the first media outlet to cover this bizarre find. Their story, published on July 23rd, was a cheeky headline, The Hound of Bonnachville, which is a play on the nearby area of Bonnachers and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hound of Baskervilles that made some local waves at that time. But things truly gained steam when Gawker published its Dead Monster Washes Ashore in Montauk blog post on July 29th. The 87-word post was full of snark and heavily suggested that the Montauk monster was a marketing stunt. But the bizarre photo made an impact and the story hit the national stage, appearing in outlets like Fox News and the Huffington Post. Conspiracy theorists around the globe perked up and Coleman, who had a finger on the pulse of this weird animal and other weird animal discoveries, was among those who wanted to know more. But uh, the time Coleman arrived in New York to inspect the creature, its carcass was nowhere to be found. It appeared that somebody had purposefully removed it, sending suspicious onlookers into a tailspin. Investigating the Montauk monster yields more questions than answers. Coleman was unable to see the creature with her own eyes. According to one local, the creature had decomposed beyond recognition Now it's just skull and bones. Before a guy who Hewitt refused to identify took the carcass into the woods near his house. Hewitt has since declined any further interviews. Meanwhile, the three young women who found the monster allegedly seemed to vanish from the media. As well, Coleman was left with few clues to work with. Although the locals, who claimed to have seen its decomposed carcass before it vanished, said it was no bigger than a cat 
and any conclusions of its origin and identity would now have to be theoretical. As such, some experts have come to view the whole situation as a farce. According to William Wise, director of Stony Brook University's Living Marine Resource Institute, the creature was likely either a coyote or a dog that had been in the sea for a while. He added that the creature was likely not a rodent, sheep, or raccoon. Others insisted that the creature was perhaps a turtle without the shell, which would explain the beak on the end of the face. But Wise disagreed. Turtles don't have teeth, where the Montauk monster certainly did. On the other hand, rumors have spread that the beast was an escaped mutant from Plume Island's nearby Animal Disease Center. Local cable reporter Nick Layton said he spoke with the three women before they shielded themselves from the media and said their talk on July 31st included coy chatter about the Plume Island narrative and that Goldberg showed him an alternative photo of the creature from an entirely different angle. Nick Layton visited the Plume Island facility two years after the Montauk monster scandal. He reported that security was so tight that it seemed unlikely anything could escape or get in. Layton added that he had to get government approval in order to bring a TV crew along with him and that the crew wasn't allowed to take anything from the facility, including an open bottle of water. Then Layton hit on what could be the solution to this bizarre mystery. After some solid theories, the mystery continues to endure, though. During his investigation, Layton heard rumors of a dead animal that was given a Viking funeral, during which it was burned and sent afloat on the sea in flames. It seemed plausible that the honored creature had washed ashore ditch plains, burned and disfigured. This theory gained credibility when an unidentified local reporter told Drew Grant that they had found a dead raccoon on a nearby shelter island in late June 2008. But the creature photographed is significantly larger than the raccoon, about as big as a chocolate lab, and according to other eyewitness accounts saying that it's not much larger than the cat, it's really hard to tell at this point without the physical body how large this thing really was. But according to these reports, the creature was honored with a Viking funeral, not merely explored for crass entertainment, they said. In the interest of full disclosure, this happened shortly after a waterboarding endurance competition. And just before a clothespins on your genitals challenge held among friends. Ultimately, it appeared as though the creature was but some kind of dead or mutilated mammal. Indeed, Discovery officially speculated that it was probably a raccoon, a rather abnormally large raccoon. And there have been theories pouring out of that facility on Plume Island of human experiments, genetic crossbreeding between plants and animals or humans and animals, head transplants between humans and apes, and or studies and research and experiments with telekinetic energy, psychic ability, psychic powers, which gives us the show Stranger Things, 
The show is based on the Montauk Monsters and the experiments that allegedly took place through the years at the Plume facility. Even Coleman concurred with this explanation. In his opinion, the Montauk Monster does not belong alongside the ranks of Yeti just yet and agrees that it was probably an overgrown mammal of some sort, whether it be a large dog, a large raccoon, or a large cat is anyone's guess. However, the carcass was never examined or tested, and of course, the dead raccoon, quote-unquote, burned on a raft theory remains disputed. Some remain adamant that the creature was something else entirely, considering how large it truly was. Indeed, the isolated uh, tip of Long Island has been home to other alleged paranormal events, such as the Montauk Project, which supposedly launched time travel experiments, as I mentioned, as the Montauk Air Force Base, along with the animal testing facility on Plume Island. When Ellen Killeran wrote about the Montauk monster for The Observer in 2008, an acquaintance told her that Montauk is a place with a lot of secrets. For reporter Drew Grant, there's nothing else to do but accept the fact that the legend of the Montauk monster will live on unsolved. It's going to be one of those mysteries that will forever endure. Please hold for an important message from one of my sponsors. Unparalleled Insider Access. Get it all. Introducing the Sirius XM Platinum VIP plan. Our newest, most exclusive plan. Listen in two cars, plus stream anywhere with two app logins. Access a massive, exclusive library of live concert video and audio recordings through nugs.net. Have opportunities to experience live and virtual Sirius XM events, including VIP-only exclusives. Get all your questions answered by a dedicated VIP customer care team. Plus, get all the entertainment we've got. It's all included with your Platinum VIP subscription. Be a VIP. Call 844-711-8800 to learn more. Offer details apply. One login for activated vehicle. Not available in Canada. Thank you for listening. That is all for this week that I will be covering. I hope it was a plethora of information for you to digest and possibly share with your friends or just anyone you pass along the street. Have a great weekend. Please tune in next week for more Paranormally Speaking with your host, award-winning author, Neil Parks. Yes, that's me. Thank you and Godspeed.